A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is Clark Strand, author of Waking Up to the Dark, Ancient Wisdom for a Sleepless Age. This is a book that Amazon recommended to me. I don't know that I would have found it any other way, but I'm so glad it did. I love this book. Clark is someone who has written six books. He's also written for the Washington Post or writes for the Huffington Post, New York Times, Newsweek's blog on faith. Tricycle, which is a Buddhist magazine you might know, Body and Soul, Spirituality and Health. He's the founder of the Green Meditation Society in Woodstock, New York, and he leads discussion groups and lectures in Greenwich Village. He participated in 2015 in the first White House U.S. Buddhist Leaders Conference, and he also has a Buddhist Bible study group, which I knew I was going to like him right then. Now, we explore some things that are not, I think, particularly religious, but they deal with religion. So, particularly toward the end of this interview, we get into some of this. And I don't know if you're like me, but I find some of that fascinating. You know, the more historical and antiquitical, I don't know if that's a word, antiquitical <laughs> from antiquity, these religious traditions that we've inherited and somehow we've put a kind of hermetic seal on and that's the way they are and you don't touch them because of course we didn't borrow them from some other tradition, right? Um, so at any rate, I'm just giving you that setup in case you're kind of not disposed to listen to some of that. You might find his views interesting. I certainly did. In this interview, we talk about a number of things that you might find interesting and useful. Clark talks about something called bimodal sleep, and he shares both in the book and this interview research done by a doctor named Thomas Weir who was looking for human beings' primordial pattern of sleep, wanting to know how did human beings sleep before the electrical age. In this interview, we also touch on light pollution, what it's doing to our environment, what it's doing to our bodies. Clark shares the view that electrification was the worst thing that's ever happened to or for our planet, which is a pretty bold claim, but he goes on to explain what he means by that, something I had never considered because I like my light, I stay up late, you probably do too. But he shares, he reminds us that's not the way it's always been. And of course, that's having an impact not only on the environment, but on us. He shares his belief that the earth will regulate us, that there will be something called the great narrowing. He talks about what that means. He shares his view that we've reshaped this planet as a theme park for human beings through our addiction to artificial light. And he also shares his view on something that from uh, many ages ago, we've referred to as the hour of the wolf. He talks about the hour of God and how many people who experience challenges sleeping that there's nothing wrong with them, but this is in fact a natural way of sleeping 
that we have forgotten about. So that was pretty interesting. And he also shares a story that when I read it and when I related the story to my wife, it made the hairs on my arms stand up. It was that kind of electrifying, fascinating. Uh, and I asked him about it in this interview, and I'm so glad he did because he said that's not the normal arc of interview conversation. But if you listen to my podcast, you know I don't usually follow the traditional arc of interview conversations. Then the final thing we talk about, the new book that he's got coming out in November of 2019. So by the time you hear this, that book's probably out. I think you might find it interesting. I'm going to leave it to him to tell you about it. He's the founder of an eco-feminist rosary group. I actually kind of like that. And if you if you want to investigate him online before you invest your time in listening to the interview, you can go to wayoftherose.org and check it out. But at any rate, I suspect that Clark will share some views that you don't typically hear in the circles you run in or the conversations you have, unless you do, in which case I want to be a part of your conversations. All right. Uh, with that, please enjoy this conversation with Clark Strand. Clark, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. Clark, will you tell me, please, what's life about? <laughs> life is about life. I mean, I think we've we gotten very confused about this idea, you know, as, uh, as I guess, modern human beings. By modern, I mean, you know, people living like uh, in the last 12,000 years or so. I think before the agricultural revolution, people had a very uh, clear sense of what life was and what life was about. They followed the rhythms of the natural world and they could, you know, they, the, the answer to the question, you know, what is life about was just reflected in the world about them. So they could see its rhythms. They felt a part of those rhythms. You know, I don't think that there was any great mystery uh, uh, attributed to life because people didn't imagine that human life is separate from the greater life of the planet. And so it wasn't you were trying to uh, carve out some special uh, meaning, right, apart from the, the biosphere. You were part of everything you saw. So you, you naturally assumed your, your place and your meaning in that, that greater sphere. Yeah, I, I think that's such an amazing perspective. And I realize that I've lived with these unexamined assumptions of, you know, humans are somehow superior to all other life. We're at the top of the chain, this kind of thing. Mm, and then yeah. one of my teachers pointed out the native you know, Native American perspective of animals as our brothers you oh, know, yeah. and, and our relatives. And they said, you know, if you think about it, being alone in the mountains, if you come across a right. bear or, you yeah. know, if you're on the plains, you come into a buffalo, you're not superior mm. to that creature. No, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. That, that, that really resonates with me. And, and Clark, your book, Waking Up to the Dark, Ancient Wisdom for a Sleepless Age. Now, I know you've written a lot of books. And by the time people hear this, you'll have had another book released as well. But I, if you're if you're willing, I'd love to explore the ideas in this book. In this sure, interview. absolutely, yeah, awesome. I found it. I told you this when I reached out to you to request this interview. That this book was recommended to me by Amazon. <laughs> and, <laughs> wow! And, and proof to me that <laughs> technology is not all about like cat videos and porn. Like it, right, it, it right. actually found something. Helped me find something that I found really valuable. And your views of the darkness, I just think, are very beautiful and one that you write from a deep place of experience. I just want to ask, and this is maybe kind of a poetic question, but I realize as listeners, who, if they've even hung in here this 90 seconds or trying to figure out who is this guy, why would I listen to him, do I care or whatever, but I want to, I want to ask this as a way that people might start to, 
to be able to say, wow, yeah, that's interesting, or I could, I want to know more. Will you talk about what's your relationship to the darkness? Well, I've been waking up in the middle of the night since I was a young boy. And, uh, you know, I can't say exactly why that happened in the beginning. You know, I grew up down south in a, a darker world, <laughs> I guess you'd say, uh, where, you know, wasn't quite as much electric lighting. And I, I was the oldest. And I think my parents probably, you know, put me to bed not too long after the sun went down. And so for whatever reason, I reverted to this, you know, older, more natural pattern of sleeping, which was I'd sleep for about four hours and I'd wake up. And in the beginning, I just lay there in bed, you know, sort of peacefully, and then I would eventually go back to sleep. Uh, but long about nine years old, maybe, I started to think, you know, I'm up. Everybody else is asleep. I love being outside. It's beautiful out. Moon shining. This was northern Alabama. Most, most of the year, the weather was pretty temperate. Why not go outside? And so I would start to slip out the door, right? And, you know, my only enemies were the squeaking door hinge, right? And the dog who would growl, if the family dog, if I didn't acknowledge her. <laughs> so I'd go over and I'd pet her and I'd ease out the door. And there was a golf course, you know, with a lot of big, uh, heady, starry silences above it. Very dark, uh, just about a block away. So I would wander over to the golf course starting about age nine in the middle of the night. And I would just walk on the golf course for an hour and then go back to bed. No one knew, knew I was doing this, and so nobody knew to tell me not to do it. And uh, I didn't have any sense that what I was doing was in any way wrong. I knew it was a little atypical. Like, you know, I'd see maybe every once in a while I'd see like a police car passing at a distance, and I knew to sort of step into the shadows of the moonlight, you know, so that I wouldn't be seen. I had some sense that maybe, you know, nine-year-old boy wasn't supposed to be alone, at, you know, in the dark in the middle of the night. So, but I never called attention to it. And then one, uh, you know, one one night I came back and my mother was awake for some reason. And I walked in and I pretended to be sleepwalking. <laughs> Dressed with shoes on. Yeah, like shoes on, the yeah. whole thing. And she bought it, you know, or she pretended to. I guess the alternative was to ask what antisocial behavior her son could possibly, her nine-year-old son could possibly be up to in the middle of the night. So so I always uh, loved uh, the dark. I loved the darkness hours. I was never afraid of it. And uh, I grew up without any fear of it. Uh, I maintain to this day that, that human beings don't naturally fear the dark. They might fear what's in the dark, you know. Uh, if they live in an area, you know, with bears or, or wild animals or whatever, maybe they would be, you know, a little apprehensive about that. But the dark itself, they don't. They fear being alone in the dark, I think. Yeah, and that's a very subtle distinction, <laughs> you know, to not fear the dark, but what's in the dark. And, you know, there were probably a half dozen. I mean, I highlighted almost every page of this book, but there were a few ideas that really stood out to me and resonated in a way. It was the experience of when somebody puts in language something I already knew but wasn't aware of. Right, right. And that, what you just yeah. said again, is one of them, that children don't fear the darkness. They fear being alone. And you make the point that if you take a child who's been in his or her crib alone in the dark, they'll cry, but then you bring them into bed, they don't cry anymore, usually. No. Oh, they don't. If you and if you have a family bed, or you know, if, as they do in most indigenous cultures, if a mother is a nursing mother is sleeping with the child and nursing when the child wakes in the middle of the night, there's really no crying to speak of, right? That everyone's just everyone wakes and sleeps in a natural rhythm, and uh, and and everybody gets the sleep they need. 
Yeah. So, okay. So when you're out nine, 10 and, and on, because this was yeah. something you, you carried Lifelong out, pattern. Right? Lifelong yeah. pattern, even still? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I had one of the most beautiful walks of my entire life just the other night on the full moon of October 16th, for whatever reason, just, you know, couldn't tell you exactly what was special about it, but it was just, you know, I got back from it. It just felt sublime. That's beautiful. So you, you weren't out causing mischief. I mean, as a, even as a teenager, because my parents would, they would assure me nothing good happens after midnight. <laughs> <laughs> right. But this, you weren't out like smashing mailboxes well, and. It, no, no, I wasn't. I mean, I occasionally witnessed a, a few things, you know, that, that like that. I mean, not, nothing ever, you know, very uh, uh, dangerous. I, mean, I didn't witness any crimes or anything, but I would occasionally, you know, see people sort of skulking around and they'd see me and they'd run off. The interesting thing is, I mean, I, you know, I grew pretty fast. And by the time I was, you know, in high school, I was about 6'2". And I'm 6'2 now and, you know, weigh over 200 pounds. So, you know, people see me in the middle of the night walking along and <laughs> I tend to be the person they avoid because <laughs> they don't know why I'm out there, you know. So, but no, I was never up to mischief. And, um, you know, and when my friends started staying up really late as teenagers, we would go out and we would have stayed out late and stuff like that. I always feel a little resentful, you know, in an odd kind of way. I'd get home and I'd be too tired and I'd sleep for the rest of the night. And I'd kind of feel like I hadn't gotten, you know, that sort of magical time that I was used to getting uh, when it was just me. Yeah, that was that was the next thing I was going to ask is how did this impact your like your studies and maybe your social life or, or your chores at home, things like that? Did it ever, were you ever exhausted? No, you know, I wasn't. And I, I do think that I'm probably a, a bit of an outlier in that respect for whatever reason. Um, I think that, um, you know, I always woke in the middle of the night and uh, I would usually go out walking unless the weather was really bad. And um, sometimes even when the weather was bad, I'd go out and I would come back and I'd go back to sleep. And the quality of my sleep was always uh better when I would wake in the middle of the night. I mean, and now, you know, because of the NIH studies, I, I think people begin to understand that segmented sleep or sometimes called bimodal sleep, right? Sleeping in two segments of the night is actually the more natural pattern of sleep. So it only, it only uh, stands to reason that if you are following the natural pattern of sleep for human beings, that your quality of sleep is going to be better. So generally speaking, you know, I, I think I was in pretty good health. I certainly never experienced myself as being tired from lack of sleep unless I stayed up too late. I, I might stay up too late and get to bed at 2 and wake up at 7. I'd be just as tired as anybody else. But if I got to bed at 10 or 11 and then, you know, woke in the middle of the night for an hour and went back to sleep, I woke up just fine. You know, this was another one of those things that um... – I, I don't think I was really aware of, I'd heard it somewhere, you know, because as we look for all these ways to become more efficient or to become happier, you know, as our society follows this positive psychology movement, you know, these discussions of, of sleep seem to be coming, you know, there's people that make whole careers about being, you know, thought leaders of this and things. But so I'd heard something about this, but didn't really get it until I read it in your book about the work of Dr. Thomas Ware. Will you share? I'll bet people listening won't know that. And I found it fascinating. Well, he's a fascinating guy. Thomas Ware was the uh, head of uh, psych psychobiology and, uh, and, and uh, psycho I can't remember the rest of it, psychobiology and um, sleep research, I suppose, at the National Institutes of Health. 
he was the guy who basically discovered uh, 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 seasonal affective disorder, right? He did some of the original research on circadian rhythms in humans and such things. And I always think of how appropriate it is that seasonal affective disorder is SAD. Sad, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah sad. it totally is, right, right? Right, yeah. So, so anyway, we got fascinated uh, by sleep at a certain point in, in the mid-90s, and he... Uh, early to mid-90s, and he began asking himself a question. He realized that uh, the, you know, human genome changes very gradually, right? And the human beings are, are wired for certain sorts of uh, uh, psychobiological uh, behavior, certain sorts of hormonal behaviors, and that that probably wouldn't change very rapidly. So he began to ask himself the question, how did uh, people sleep in the days before artificial lighting? Did they sleep better? Did they sleep longer? You know, when did they go to bed? When did they get up? He didn't know the answers to these questions. But he had a hunch, which was that uh, whatever uh, people, however people slept then, they would sleep now if you took them off of artificial lighting. Okay. Right? Do, you, do, you, do you mind if I pause this? I actually want to yeah. come back right to this point. But, okay. uh, and, and I know I asked this question, but now that you're talking yeah, yeah, about yeah, it, sure, I, I, I feel like sure. there's some really useful setup for this as well. Right, that, right. Okay. So one of the other perspectives that you shared, I was like, whoa, I'd never even occurred to me. You talk about the the uh, creation or discovery of artificial light, De Dr. Edison's work, as being the worst thing that's ever happened for the planet. I, I firmly believe that's true. I think the the discovery of of, uh, of incandescent lighting and brighter and brighter levels of lighting, and I won't pin it all on Edison because there was already brighter light. There was whale light, whale oil light. You know, the human beings, you know, from from the uh, uh, Middle Ages on have been, you know, courting higher and higher degrees of illumination. So somebody would have found it. But yeah, the the, the discovery of electric lighting was, I think, you know, to a great extent, prob probably the worst single thing that human beings could have done, other than possibly agriculture. <laughs> and why do you yeah. say that? I mean, I look at light and I think of all all that I'm able to do because of it, which yeah, isn't an art, right? And, and, and it's yeah. just one of these that I've taken for granted. I mean, like to the point that if the power goes out and I walk in a room, even with the power out, I'm so conditioned, I still flip on the switch. Right, right. Right. And it doesn't come on, but it's how much I expect it. Why do you say that it's like the worst thing? Well, look at what you just said. All that I can look at all that I can do. Right. Right. Okay. Well, what you can do and what you should do, right, as a human being are two very different things. As a human being, you can do a lot of things. You can create highways. You can create uh, a global warming. You can do nuclear, all kinds of nuclear things. weapons. Nuclear, you can you can do all sorts of things. What should you do? Well, you should uh, find a you know find a food source that's stable enough or predictable enough, or figure out how to migrate in such a way as to find it, so that you can eat long enough to uh, produce offspring. Right. That's what you should do as a human being. That's what animals do. Human beings are animals. So that's the baseline. And that's determined by the number of human beings ideally is determined by solar ca carrying capacity, which is the amount of energy produced, you know, in a, in a particular plot of land, an acre of land, okay, by the sun. Uh, you know, there should be human beings should be living more in accordance with the natural 
availability of energy in their ecosystem. The energy can, that, that comes to them through consuming of, of uh, plant and animal proteins and so forth, so on, and uh, you know other forms of energy, uh, even fire for warmth, so forth and so on. But once we slip that groove and we begin to uh, introduce higher and higher levels of artificial illumination, not only do we begin to produce more, we begin to expect more. We begin to expect that everything is possible. Everything is clear. Uh, you know, I mean, you've read the book. It just it cascades from there. It just goes on and on and on. Eventually, human beings are consuming, you know, 24 hours a day. Yeah, and, and the way the way that you say this in the book, you say, today we live in a state of perpetual hunger for food, for sex, and for stimulants of all kinds because our bodies are convinced that it's August every That's day it. of the year, and That's there's it. no way That's to convince right. them otherwise. Yeah. Look, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a homo sapiens, you know, at the end of summer when, uh, you know, carbohydrates are plentiful, right? Food sources are plentiful, eating as much as they can because then they stand a better chance of making it through through the winter, the colder months when there's less, when the food sources begin to, to diminish. And, uh, you know, that's the reason why uh, uh, human women would consume, would conceive typically in August, right about that time of year. They, they would build up enough body fat to carry themselves through pregnancy and then deliver their children in spring. So this was sort of the natural cycle. But once people, human beings began to introduce uh, artificial, higher levels of artificial lighting all year round, then they began to tell their bodies that it was August all year round. So... You know, it's time. It's always time to eat. It's always time to mate. It's always time to 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 you know fill the world and subdue it and conquer it. Yeah, right? and and I'm reminded of that when I go to the grocery store and I buy fruit and I can buy any fruit any time, and I have no idea. And and this, I'm confessing my ignorance. When fruit should be like according to its you know biological heritage when it ought to be in season and as a consumer i just expect if i go down to the grocery store i can buy whatever i want yeah and see we we think as human beings that there's that there is uh, we have no reciprocal effect on the environment because of this we just think these things are available right but the making of these things available all year round basically uh causes us to drift further and further from our ecological niche as a species until finally we have redesigned the entire planet as a theme park for homo sapiens. <laughs> that, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and the result is that finally we create a world that, that not only can't sustain most other form of forms of life, but can't support our forms of life, our form of life yeah, either. Ultimately, right? right? Yeah. And, yeah, the, and the yeah. sixth great extinction and this. Yeah. And and the other part of this that you that you say before we go back to Dr. Weir, I had no idea. So in your book, you write 99 percent of all Americans today live in areas that are officially light polluted, which means and I didn't know this, the definition of light pollution. Will you share what is how do you define light pollution? Light pollution is defined, I think, as anything that blocks out the stars of the Milky Way so that you, you, know, you can't see the stars that are there. If you want to think about it, strictly speaking, uh, you know, anything that blocks any of the stars other than the moonlight, right, the presence of moonlight, which, of course, you know, creates kind of a, a milky quality to the sky that, that you know, cancels out a lot of the starlight. The night of a very full moon, you can see fewer stars. But anything on a on a relatively dark night that causes you not to see the stars that are there is like technically light pollution. Uh, 
Now, light pollution becomes more and more of a problem to the degree that it disrupts natural functions of biological beings. That includes human beings and it includes uh, plants and animals as well. And so any place that uh, the preponderance of light after dusk is causing animals to migrate in different patterns or behave in different ways or plants to behave in different ways is, you know, registering light pollution, right? The great thing about light pollution is that if the grid goes down, it, 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 it disappears instantly, right? It ceases to exist. There's no residual effect from it. Right. Yeah. And you make the point, too, that the world gets more pollu- light polluted. It's probably true that the world's more polluted by the second, but the world gets more light polluted by the second, which means that our bodies get polluted with it. Yeah, they do. They do. I mean, the effect of light pollution, you know, on the body is it's not quite the same as like uh, the kinds of pollution you would get from, say, waterways that are uh, uh, polluted with uh, uh, endocrine disruptors and things like that. Right. It's not quite the same as that. But the body does have an uh, the light does have an effect on the body because we have photoreceptors and, you know, really all of our cells. And so. Uh, too much light is, you know, increasing our cancer rates, increasing obesity, causing us to suffer from all kinds of problems. And so, yeah, you could call it uh, light pollution or, or even probably a better term might be light toxicity. Yeah. So then back to Dr. Weir's studies where he wanted to know, how did we sleep? What was the natural way of sleeping for human beings before all this electricity, before all this light pollution and, and this theme park of a world we've created for ourselves? So what did he discover? Well, we're decided to take a bunch of ordinary people off the streets for a month. Where did he where did he find ordinary people? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, I mean you could you could question his result. I think the original participants were all men, for instance. So it's a little a little skewed already. But I think he was trying to con- you know, either he was following the usual pattern of just testing men and not women. Because this, this was or, like in the 70s? Or else he wanted to do – no, this was in the 90s. Oh, in yeah. the 90s. Okay. Yeah, in the 90s. Yeah, it's fairly recent. And so he um, he took them off all forms of electrical lighting. This is in Bethesda, Maryland. This, this uh, study took place. And he put them on a um, schedule of midwinter darkness, okay, which is a lot of darkness. And he wanted to see what would happen. And and, and for the f- and this was I'm sorry to, to interrupt here, but this was like even wristwatches, like oh yeah, notification, all, like all that's man-made it. nothing. Electro- light, like, well, lighting. well, nothing. Yeah, no, no, no artificial lighting at all because he didn't want to, uh, uh, you know, he didn't want to to confound his study, right? If people some people's wristwatch would be brighter than others and so forth and so on. So And and do you know what he did? I mean, did he did he have a, a home or a retreat somewhere? Like do you know how he stuff? had an exper- he had an experimental, I think, facility for the evening. I'm not sure during the day. I I'm I don't remember uh exactly. It's an interesting question. I believe he allowed them to go about their business. But they they had to, you know, be at the facility, you know, when it was time to go to sleep because he had to con- control all of these factors. So <laughs> And this was for a month. People came for four uh, weeks. He, they did it for four weeks. And um, the interesting thing is that for the first three weeks, people slept an average uh, of an hour and a half longer than they ordinarily did. And Weir's theory was that they were repaying the national sleep debt. 
that was the way he described it, that Americans are chronically sleep deprived. And so given the opportunity to catch up on sleep, they would do that, right? So they were actually sleeping more, but they were sleeping continuously. So if they were used for used to sleeping, say, uh, uh, five and a half hours a night, they would sleep straight, unbroken. They would then sleep for eight hours of unbroken sleep. And that happened for the first three weeks of the study. At week four, every single subject reverted to uh, the same pattern of sleep, which was that they lay in bed quietly for two hours before falling asleep after, after it got dark. They would sleep for four hours. They would wake for two hours and then sleep for another four. And every single member of the study followed the same pattern at week four. And so if you know anything at all about, uh, you know, statistics and, you know, the experimental method and all that, that's an extraordinary uh, rate of, of, of uh, you, you know, the, the, to, to have 100 percent of your subjects all reverting to the same same pattern of sleep is, you know, it's an extraordinary set of results. So he was it was clear to him that he was on to something, that that this was, in fact, the the, uh, uh, you know, he had rediscovered this sort of primordial pattern of sleep. So the interesting thing was that these these subjects reported feeling incredibly calm and peaceful during these two hours they were awake in the middle of the night. So he got very curious about that as well and began to study it. And from there, the whole thing just sort of snowballed. He, he, he began to partner with a... Uh, uh, a historian, Roger Eckrick, I can never remember quite how to say his name, who had studied uh, uh, sleep and uh, throughout history, sleep patterns, and had written uh, about uh, pre-modern patterns of sleep and so forth and so on. And and we discovered basically that there was this you know gap period in the middle of the night people were used to being awake from, and during this time they experienced a state of consciousness that was neither sleeping nor waking but uh, a state of its own with its own endocrinology. That sounds like the, for the words that come to my mind are non-ordinary consciousness. Right, exactly. Non-ordinary consciousness. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and then you talk about that in, in, after you share this about Dr. Weir's work, that in every religion, there's a long-established tradition, usually initiated by its founder, that involves waking in the middle of the night for some kind of spiritual practice, meditation, chanting, prayer, and, and you go on to describe that in Islam and Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, this kind of thing. What, I mean, what is that? Like, again, most people, because they don't live in a monastery, they don't, you know, spend a lot of time in temples and things like this. And we've kind of lost that in our rush for more, more, more. But it's available. It's a way of living and being that's like invisible to us. But talk about that. I mean, what what is that and what, what's the benefit of it and how do these practitioners do it and why? Well, I mean, those are those are a lot of questions. So I'll sort of start at the beginning. I think, I mean, Ware himself, you know, was stunned by these results. He didn't really even know how to interpret them. He was looking for some sort of a uh, endocrinological uh, portrait uh, that resembled what he was seeing in his subjects. And the only thing he could compare it to uh, in terms of what was going on in the brain was the experiences of advanced meditators. And I think that was one of the reasons why he began to, you know, sort of 
look a little far afield. I mean, he began, you know, talking a little bit like a Jungian analyst rather than a psychobiologist, right? Because he's, he, you know, this is these the stunning results. What does this mean? At the end of his uh, second study, I think he, he said that he speculated that what people who practice yoga and meditation and chanting today are probably trying to recover was a lost state of consciousness that human beings would once have taken for granted as their natural birthright. And uh, as I began to to research this, following that lead and studying all these different religions and their their practices of waking up in the middle of the night for prayer or meditation or chanting, I realized that we basically, you know, before the agricultural revolution, you know, human beings across the world were waking every night for, you know, I guess what you would call a, you know, like a nightly meditation retreat for every homo sapiens on earth, right? I mean, we were all experiencing that. So religions are, I think religions are trying to reclaim that state of mind and the sense of perspective and, uh, uh, and, and natural uh, the, the, for this perspective it gives us and also the way it harmonizes our bodies with the natural environment. So religions are always sort of, I think religions are compensatory. All religions are trying to find their way back to this state of spiritual consciousness that, that all people in the upper Paleolithic probably experienced, but which most human beings had lost by the time the major religions were getting started. And if you read between the lines, you know, the foundational stories of Jesus and Buddha and all these figures, you see that they're all going out in the middle of the night and, and having these encounters with the divine. It's really interesting because you're right, it's there, but it's not something that is taught, you know, or given people typically in who are adherents or participants in these organized religions aren't given that kind of instruction. No, no, you, you not know. anymore. Yeah. yeah, they were. They were. There was a period of time when they were. Yeah, and you talk in this book about your experience when you were in a monastery, that you would go to the – I know in Buddhism, in some some sects and some branches of Buddhism, there's a long history of meditating in the charnel grounds or the, the graveyards, you know, and, and you talk a little bit about your experience spending time in a, in a graveyard uh, without your without your teacher's knowledge or – or instruction, no. <laughs> if I understood right. Will you will you share about that? Well, you know, I think my Zen teacher wanted to teach me Japanese Zen, but I think what he ended up teaching me instead was uh, Japanese Shintoism and shamanism, <laughs> because it was the, the parts of the of, of you know the kinds of things that he had to to teach me that were most interesting to me were those sorts of things. Talk about for people who might not know Shintoism. Yeah. Shintoism is an animistic indigenous Japanese religion where pe whereby people believe that uh, there are spirits uh, that inhabit places and stones and trees and groves and that, uh, you know, they go to honor those spirits and pray to them and commune with them, draw wisdom from them. And um, Buddhism absorbed a lot of that. You know, Buddhism, as it traveled and spread around Asia, you know, beginning about 2,500 years ago, would would uh, interpolate various aspects of the culture. So in Tibet, there, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, there's a strong shamanistic element, and there is in in Japanese Buddhism as well, sort of a strong Shinto influence on it. 
But I think that for Japanese, uh, you know, Buddhists, you know, it's kind of invisible. They don't even sort of know they have it. So my teacher was always telling me things, you know, about the deities and the various spirits of this and that that we had to say these mantras to and these Dharanis to. And he was teaching me these sort of mantric formulas for communicating with these beings. And uh, I think most of my compadres at the monastery just sort of, you know, parroted them or mouthed them. But I thought, you know, maybe I'll just, you know, I'm getting up in the middle of the night anyway. Maybe I'll just go out to the graveyard and chant some of these things and see what happens. I, this, a, lo- this, a lot happened. This, this, so <laughs> I, I'm, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I know that everyone who listens, not everyone who listens to this is grew up with the Nintendo 8-bit, the original system, you know. But what you're saying right now conjures for me the legend of Zelda. You know, there's <laughs> there's a lot of time in the graveyards and miracles. Yeah, things yeah, happen. But yeah. but what what happened for you? I mean, what did you learn or what did you experience in in that time? Well, I, I I think the thing, the main thing that I, the main sort of takeaway, I think, by the time I left the monastery, was that the whole world was alive and everything in it was alive, and uh, it would take me another 20 years to, for it really to sink in that the world wasn't a series of what's, right, but a series of who's, right, that everything had, everything was a who, not a what, so that I would go out to the graveyard in the beginning and I would, you know, say a chant or meditate or whatever, and then I, gradually I would begin to notice that the animals were coming close. Sometimes they would come like right up to me in the middle of the night, bears, uh, deer, and just sit there right around the you know, sort of at the edges of the cemetery. And uh, as time went on, I began to, you know, notice that, uh, you know, I would say a prayer or something, and then a wind would just blow up out of nowhere. You know, on an utterly still night in the middle of summer, a wind would shake the trees. All kinds of mysterious things would happen that, you know, didn't seem rational or even possible, but yet they were happening. And those things happened by, by, uh, Uh, at night more than they did during the day. I think for the simple reason that, you know, I was in a different state of mind and more receptive to them, more receptive to those kinds of communications. You know, I think what you've just shared is actually very profound. Um, You know, about the world being not full of what's, but who's. And I think, you know, to people listening, many people listening, if they're like me, years ago, it probably would be easy to just dismiss that simply. Oh, well, that's quaint. You know, that, that, that's really cute. Oh, that was another culture, but we're obviously we're superior to, to that culture. We know our science knows better than that. <laughs> well, our science knows how to drive us into a sixth extinction. So, and our technology knows how to drive us into a sixth extinction. I doubt if it knows how to get us out of it. And I think that these people uh, who thought this way and lived this way and experienced the world this way, they lived for on our planet for, uh, you know, a, a million and a half, two million years without disrupting its essential patterns. So who's wise and who's not? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're, yeah. if, we're being, if we're being honest, you know, the, 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 the name uh, Homo sapiens, meaning man, the wise or the clever, is, is a bit of a misnomer. Turns out modern human beings aren't that clever. They're just good at, we're just good at getting our way. It's not the same thing. No, it, it's not. It's not the same thing. And, and this was another one of those things that y- your book really, I went, oh my gosh, like I knew that, but I didn't realize it, was about the Anthropocene. 
yes, about will yeah. you talk about you know why what that is why we call it that and what the implications of that really are yeah the the anthropocene is a way of describing uh the uh geological era that we're living through where human beings are basically redesigning the per the planet for their purpose so that natural selection becomes human selection so that the world isn't regulating itself uh, any longer in accordance to its myriad uh, needs needs of, of all these different species but rather one species is regulating the world and its patterns uh, uh, for its for its own good Right, and that's uh, Homo sapiens. So we call it the Anthropocene because it's the age of, quote, man, right, Anthropos. So uh, human beings are, you know, digging up all of these resources. They're digging up, quote, ancient sunlight, right, in the form of petroleum. Uh, they're digging up petroleum and coal and all these, you know, heavy metals and so forth and so on, and uh, repurposing them for human use exclusively. And uh, this has been going on for quite some time. Uh, you know, it, it only becomes, uh, reaches its sort of critical mass about the time of the Industrial Revolution. At that point, really, we begin to see, uh, you know, massive disruptions uh, in natural systems around the world. And those have a kind of a cascading effect. And of course, as human beings become more and more populous, right, as they have uh, since World War II, uh, the effects of, of this, you know, anthro, uh, uh, anthropocenic uh, intervention in the natural systems becomes so great, so devastating that, you know, it's led us into a mass extinction. Yeah. And it's, it's easy for me when I hear that to just go, oh, man, we're all screwed. <laughs> you know, like I hear what you're saying and there's this context for a world into which I was born but didn't to my own knowledge, have a lot of hand in shaping, you know, the way it was. And now I'm here. So where this leads me is now that we know that, like now if if we know it and we care, you know, what can we do? And maybe if to tie it back into this theme of darkness and the lessons that it contains for us and the blessings that are available through it, what kinds of exercises or practices, if anything, could somebody who's listening to this do that might, I mean, I could just end that with a question mark right there, but I want to actually try to tie it back to that awareness of, okay, we're in Anthropocene, we're headed off this cliff right? in, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. If I want to take a different road or at least hit the brakes or, you know, something, what, what, what might I do in an exercise or a practice, maybe darkness related or anything else? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, again, a lot of questions there. So let, let's take this this image of going off a cliff. That that actually uh, comes. I mean, I mean, I think people have used that a lot. The idea of going off a cliff. But uh, John Holdren, Obama's chief uh, science advisor, uh, was the person to use it most recently. I think it was in two thousand and nine. 2007 or 2009, I think, he uh, told a group of reporters at a White House press conference that uh, we were in a car with bad brakes driving through a fog and headed for a cliff. We knew for sure the cliff was out there. We just didn't know exactly where it was. And he was using this as a metaphor for ex explaining climate change and where we stood in relationship to it. And so the... Uh, 
you know, the car basically was us, you know, America specifically and human beings as a whole about to go off the cliff. The uh, bad breaks for the poor regulations on greenhouse gas administrations and the fog was um, the fog was our uncertainty about where we stood in precise relationship to, you know, the tipping points and things like that and what all of the causes were and how they interacted with one another, so forth and so on. The, the degrees of scientific uncertainty about all these things were the fog. And then the cliff was the tipping point beyond which there was really no, it wasn't possible, you know, there, no meaningful action was really possible, right? It was kind of game over. Okay. So this is a pretty brilliant metaphor. It got quoted everywhere. Everybody was talking about it. But there's one thing he doesn't talk about in this metaphor, and none of the reporters talked about it. And for 10 years, nobody talked about it, and that's the road. What about the road? How is it that we got on a road going over a cliff? The car doesn't matter. The fog doesn't matter. The brakes don't matter. The only detail in that analogy that matters is the road. That's the problem. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves and the question that uh, any, you know, spiritual practice worth doing would have to address is how do we get off of that road? The only questions are really, you know, is there another way and how quickly can we get off of the way we're on now? And so those are the questions. As far as like, you know, like how we're going to fix this, I don't believe we are going to fix it. I don't. I think that that's part of the problem. The belief that we can fix this, that we can solve this problem, that's how we got into this fix in the first place, the belief that we can solve all problems. And you better believe that any human solution to the problem of climate change is going to be anthropocentric. It's going to be a, a solution that serves human beings, which means it will only drive us faster over the cliff. So I don't hold forth any hope whatsoever for any top-down solution from a government, from science, from policy experts, I think they're all completely doomed. I don't believe there's any possibility that any of that will succeed. Well, and that's what, the, what Paul Hawkins said when I talked to him on this show. Hope yeah. is the pretty mask of fear. Yeah. Well, no, there is. See, I, I disagree with Paul, actually. I've, I've interviewed Paul myself. He's, he's a very interesting guy, but, but we don't see eye to eye on certain things, and I don't see eye to eye with him on, on this. I believe there is hope, but we're not the hope. The planet is the hope, right? The planet is very, very old and very, very wise, and these systems that it has uh, set in place from time immemorial and has kept going for a very, very, very long time. Uh, everything from the most primal rhythms of the solstices and the equinoxes to the seasons, the, these, these patterns are very durable and old and very wise, right? The planet's very wise. The dirt is very wise. Even the oceans are wise. And these, these things that we think of as things rather than as who's, right? We don't, we don't think of them as beings, right? We don't accord them the respect that ancient people did. Uh, they, they can uh, solve problems that, that we can't solve, and, and I believe they, they will. Now, will part of their solution be a massive reduction in, in the uh, popula human population on this planet? I believe so. Yeah, which that, I again, 
was a yeah. term that I read in your book I'd yeah. never heard before, the great narrowing, capital G, yeah. capital M. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, if you, you know, if you read carefully that metaphor, which I, uh, or not really a metaphor, but that term, which I use at the very end of the book, uh, that great narrowing is the narrowing of a birth canal, right? That, I mean, I go to great pains to to suggest that this great narrowing is is not just a great restricting or a culling or something like that, but rather this is the necessary passage to to uh, for there to be any life. I think meaningful life for human beings, uh, we have to we'll have to pass through that great narrowing, and it'll mean a great. Uh, reduction in population on our planet. How that will happen, I don't know. I, I pray daily that it will be merciful and slow rather than sudden and devastating. Uh, but I do believe that the planet will regulate us. And, uh, you know, global warming, we see that as a problem. Climate change is a problem for human beings, but for the planet, it may be a solution. Yeah. So, okay, now I'm just thinking we're all screwed, <laughs> which I know is not what you're saying. But I wonder if there is anything that we can do individually that will allow us to not be so darn anthropocentric, I can barely say it, anthropocentric, but instead be a part of that natural process. Well, yeah, I really, I really do believe that. I, I don't, uh, like I said, I don't believe in top-down solutions, but I do believe in small, resilient uh, uh, communities. And I, I do believe that that's the answer, and I believe we're trending in that direction. Uh, you know, you can you can look at the glass as half full and the glass as, as half empty. And I think, uh, you know, the very pessimistic way of looking at the world today is that people are becoming increasingly factionalized and uh, – uh, you know, at war with one another and, and tribalized and so forth and so on, you know, uh, <clears throat> that people have become sort of individuated to such an extent that they're sort of feel completely unique alone and separate from one another. But I think the <clears throat> that, that there's the possibility that what we are moving towards naturally as a species right now is a, a smaller scale, more tribal form of identity. Uh, I don't think that in the absence of, of widespread petroleum use, the absence of very, very cheap, easily available petroleum, I don't think there's any way to maintain the large-scale uh, national identities that we now have, China, America, uh, any of the larger countries, you know, can only sustain their political identity with uh, cheap, easily available petroleum. There's no way in the absence of petroleum fertilizers, uh, uh, gas-powered engines, uh, you know, there, there's no way there are coal-powered uh, powered plants for producing power. There's no way that they're going to, to sustain the information systems, the infrastructures, the food delivery systems, all the systems that are necessary uh, to be in place to maintain large-scale identities among people. So I think you're going to see a further and further fragmentation. The negative way of looking at that is, is oh my gosh, everything's falling apart, or people are drifting apart from one another, people are at war with one another. The upside of that is that as people begin to um, contract and begin to live more locally uh, and to eat more locally, they consume less, they uh, disrupt the planet, the, the, the disrupt of the natural uh, patterns of the the patterns of the natural world are less disrupted by travel, 
all kinds of things actually will, 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 I think, get better because of that. But people don't know how to live that way anymore. We, we've gotten we've gotten much too big in our thinking, much too grandiose. You know, uh, Facebook in an odd kind of way is like you know one of the great, most grandiose ideas that you know any human being ever had. But the 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 good side of it is that as we learn to occupy a smaller place for ourselves, I think we become more resilient to change and more able to weather it, and uh, we begin to live in a more healthy way. So, so yeah, that that's that's a really beautiful perspective, and and I'm I feel encouraged to see that I think that is happening. You know, where restaurants, at least you know here, and I see it when I when I travel. That they'll talk about how far food has traveled to be on my plate, you know, and smaller like community gatherings that are encouraged and circle, you know, processes. And, you know, so I think I think that's really beautiful. Well, okay. before we transition, I just have a couple more questions that I want to ask you uh, from from your experience uh, and with the dark. One of them is this term. The hour of the wolf and the hour of God. If you'll talk about what those are, what do those mean to you? Right. Well, I think modern people experience the dark as predatory because they have made their alliances with the light, right? And people naturally will wake in the night, right? So especially as you get older, you're it takes a tremendous amount of metabolic uh, force and power of will to override this natural pattern of sleep and to make yourself sleep for eight hours straight or five and a half or six hours sleep. Most people don't realize that it takes energy to sleep straight through, but it does, right? And uh, as we get older and our metabolic uh, powers uh, begin to diminish, we are less resistant to the natural pattern of sleep. And so as you get older, you experience sleep fragmentation, right? You start to wake up in the middle of the night. And so there's an entire industry to medicate people so that they can then, you know, get back to sleep. But it's natural. What's happening is older people are reverting to the natural pattern of sleep because they don't have the energy to resist it any longer. So Clark, if I understand what you're saying, we are taking a medication (laughs) and we're profiting, we're profiting by giving somebody something that's actually not helping them because it's suppressing a natural function. Oh yeah, sleep and, industry, the sleep aid, the, the 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 sleeping pill industry, right? The pharmaceutical industry for like sleeping aids and things like that. It's a big racket. It's a it's it's a huge huge racket. There are people, I think, you know, there are rare people who who have genuine sleep disorders, but I think the the incidence of of real sleep disorders. Uh, you know, in our culture are, are probably very, very low. What you have is a light disorder, right? So we have a light, we have ad- addictions to artificial lighting and the, and the natural fallout from the, that, that addictive uh, level of light saturation. So that's the problem. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing I was surprised to learn is that I just didn't know naturally is that when we take those sleep aids, that sleep medication, Right. That's not sleep. That's closer to being anesthetized. Right, right. We, yeah, we just basically anesthetize ourselves. Yeah, it's not, it's not a very good quality of sleep. But when we have this 
relationship to the darkness so that we're we're kind of afraid of it right and um or, or we fear waking up in the night because we fear we'll be tired the next day and we will be if we're if we're burning the candle at both ends when we wake up in the middle of the night and can't get back to sleep we will be tired we will fall asleep at the wheel or fall asleep on the job or be too drowsy or our health will suffer that's true in most cases so um I just I use the term the hour of the wolf to describe most people's relationship to that eerie predatory uh, uh, quality uh, that people experience when they wake, say, between the hours of two and four o'clock in the morning and can't get back to sleep. This is the time when our resistance is is lowest, right? When we are sort of at the lowest metabolic, you know, ebb in our day, and uh, you know, whatever nightmares, you know, are there to be had will come calling about that time. So there's that predatory sort of feeling, fatalism, fatal, fatal very, it's a very fatalistic kind of kind of uh, experience. I think that many people have, but those same people. If you got them to go to bed at like nine o'clock, right, or just to go to bed at dusk whenever it happens or within a couple of hours after dusk, right? Most people actually wouldn't go to bed at dusk, but the sun goes down a couple of hours later. They start to naturally get sleepy and they go to sleep. You take those same people and they will revert to a pattern of sleep that allows them to wake in the middle of the night and then their experience of it will be transformed. I use the term the hour of God to describe the difference between, you know, uh, the darkness one experiences when when there's enough time left for sleep and the darkness one experiences when our, our sleep nights like our work days are compressed into cramped little eight hour blocks. Yeah, that as a coach, as, as one who coaches others, I'm constantly paying attention to language. And, and how beautiful this language is, that reframe of from yeah. the hour of wolf to the hour of God. Right, right. You know, it's, 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 I think, as big a gulf as can exist between language describing, you know, two, two terms describing the same thing. Yeah. Okay, so the last, the last thing I want to ask here um, before we transition is you, you share an experience that um, – I related to my wife. She's she's out of town and we were talking in the evening and I shared with her a bit of what I was reading in your book. And as I did, the hairs on my arm stood up. Just as I related, you know, part of what you share in, in this book. Um, and I'm wondering if you're willing to, to share it with the people listening now, which is the part when you went one night, you went to go for a walk. And if I have the details right, you put your hand on the knob on the doorknob, you're about to go out and something speaks to you. Like something says, don't go out and be very still or something like that. Will you, will you share what happened? Yeah. Well, first of all, not something, but someone. So, and th this is a, this is a huge distinction. It's interesting because, you know, a lot of, since the book came out, a lot of uh, journalists uh, uh, and various people have interviewed me and, uh, you know, the typical trajectory for the interview is that, uh, uh, you know, people want to talk about the sleep science, they want to talk about darkness, they want to talk about uh, cultural criticism, paleoanthropology, and so forth and so on. They don't want to talk about the Marian apparition, which is the real subject of the book, right? I wrote the book because of the Marian apparition and not because of the sleep science. I doubt if I'd ever would have bothered to write a book on 
the history of sleep and uh, uh, biology of sleep and so forth and so on had I not had this experience. So for me, the you know the the entire book is just a very long introduction to that last part, right? I'm so and glad specifically, I brought it up. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you did too. Especially to the last three pages, when 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 the uh, you know when the Black Madonna herself speaks in her own words, right? The last three pages of the book are are a uh, gospel, uh, the gospel according to the dark. It's a document written, you know, composed entirely by her in her own words. I couldn't have written it, would never have written it, didn't even understand it when I first read it. So uh, anyway, that, yeah, that first night, I've been doing this my whole life, getting up and walking in the middle of the night. And, you know, I've been a Zen monk. I followed, I'd done various spiritual practices, uh, many of them very, very seriously all my life. Um, but I'd never had anything like a, you know, I would call a visionary experience necessary. And um, so anyway, one night I got up to go for a walk and uh, I felt a hand on my shoulder and a voice, a, a male voice said, don't go out tonight, uh, remain inside and stay very, very still. And so I had um, I had actually heard this voice once before, years ago, when I was in a plane I thought was going down. And my daughter turned to us and said, turned to me and said, uh, Daddy, are we going to die? And uh, a voice spoke to me and said, I don't think so. And so I said that to my daughter and it calmed her down. In fact, you know, the plane miraculously did land and uh, there were fire engines coming along and men in mylar suits and everything, but we did survive. And so I, I, I had heard the voice once before and I thought to trust it. So I, I did not go out. It's a beautiful night. So I uh, lay down on the couch and I meditated. You know, I'd spent years in the Buddhist monastery. I knew how to do that. I knew how to get very still, be very quiet. So I did. And after about 40 minutes, I suddenly felt a presence in the room. Like I could feel that someone was there. You know how that is. You know, you're, you're alone in a room and then suddenly, you know, maybe you drift off or something and suddenly there's somebody there. Oh, wow. Where did that come from? So I opened my eyes and there was uh, a young girl about 17 years old, uh, kneeling right beside the couch, you know, at eye level, just about a foot and a half from, from me, from my face. And she had short auburn hair, uh, hazel eyes, uh, sort of freckles around her fair skin, freckles around her nose. And she had an X of black electrical tape over her mouth. And I looked at her and she was utterly real, just right there. And, uh, you know, I didn't, you know, I guess I spent so much time in the dark and I spent so much time meditating, you know, and Zen monasteries, they tell you if experience like this comes, it's called machio or illusion. So you're supposed to, just supposed to breathe through it, right? So I was just being very sort of calm and uh, thinking, well, I've never experienced anything like this before, but, you know, here it is. And, but her eyes, I looked at her eyes and her eyes were urgent. And I'd never seen anything like the urgency in the eyes of any anybody had ever seen before like this it, and, and the eye said the tape has to come off and so I reached out and I uh, pulled the tape back from from her lips I could actually feel the, the tape against her skin as I pulled it so the, the experience was utterly real and tactile 
And then she let out a deep gasp, like uh, there was a sound that didn't fit the size of her body. It was like a, a crypt being unsealed. I wrote about it that way in the book, like a uh, air rushing into a cavern after thousands of years. And I thought that uh, at that moment, I thought I wanted to ask her who she was at the very least, and but she shook her head. So nothing could be said. And we just looked at one another for a long time. And then I closed, like, you know, the good Zen Buddhist, you know, I've been trained to be. I just closed my eyes. When I opened them again later, she was gone. But after that, I experienced her presence continuously, or have experienced her presence continuously since then. That was eight years ago. So she's always there. And uh, she was always there for the next couple of weeks. And uh, then again, two weeks later, I uh, I got up to go for a walk, put my hand on the doorknob, same voice, same time. This time I knew what to expect. So I got on the couch, I meditated, and then I felt her presence. I opened my eyes. She was there. And now the question that's been burning, you know, in my mind, I, I've been able to think of anything else for two weeks. It's like this is all I can think of. Who Who is this figure. I've never experienced anything like this. I can't make sense of it. Um, so I said, who are you? And she says, I am the hour of God. Now, this is the expression that I've been using for years, right, to describe this experience, you know, a very peaceful, sort of transcendently peaceful uh, uh, meditative experience I've been having all my life. So I say to her, I think I know what that is. And she says, if you really understood, you would have said, who, not what? And that was it for me. I, that, that was the closest thing I think I've ever had to, you know, in my lifetime to a, you know, Buddha-like aha kind of moment. Like, my whole world became fully animated at that point. Like, everything was a who. And... Um, I think it took some time before I began to realize that, that the girl who was speaking to me was basically the voice of the planet. Um, this was the, you know, the voice of the Paleolithic mother goddess, uh, you know, from, you know, that some people call Gaia, uh, that, you know, has, you know, been at the forefront of, of uh, or was at the forefront of Paleolithic people's minds so that they sculpted her in these small statues over and over and over again throughout all of the ancient world. But at the beginning, I just, I really didn't know. I think some part of me suspected that this was the figure that, uh, you know, young Portuguese peasant girls reported seeing and called the Virgin Mary, right? But I didn't know for sure, and I didn't want to admit that to myself because I certainly didn't want to become Catholic. I wasn't even Christian, right? What business did I have, you know, witnessing an apparition of the Virgin Mary? But about um, about uh, 10 weeks after that, I was vacationing on Cape Cod one night, and uh, she woke me at 1.30 a.m. with the words, If you rise to say the rosary tonight, a column of saints will support your prayer. And, uh, you know, I wasn't Catholic, but also wasn't stupid. And the only figure I'd ever heard of who invited you to pray the rosary and made promises based on whether you did that or not was Mary. And so, you know, I woke up the next morning, you know, I, I did get up and say the rosary, obviously, and then went back to bed. 
And I went to a, a used bookstore in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. And the first book I saw just sitting right up there at the counter, like it was waiting for me, was a, a little paperback with a plain blue cover called um, Queen of the Cosmos uh, Interviews with the Visionaries of Metagoria. So I knew that these apparitions had occurred in Metagoria right before the uh, civil war there in Bosnia. So I picked it up and I opened it to a page at random. And the interviewer had asked one of the young visionaries, uh, Marisha, I think, uh, she said, uh, is the uh, rosary a universal practice, even though it is so distinctly identified with the Catholic Church? And this young girl said, yes, the Blessed Mother asks everyone on earth to pray the rosary, no matter what their religion or what their belief. So I bought the book. I mean, you know, how could I not, right? And I, But that was it. You know, that very day, weirdly, people began asking me to teach them to pray the rosary. Like literally that day, no people way. began asking me. That... And I went back to Woodstock and, you know, after our vacation was over, people wanted to talk to me about the rosary. Started a rosary group. I started a rosary group with my wife. It's spread. It's been spreading around the world. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, that you know, our next book is called The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine Hidden in the Rosary comes out on November 5th. And, uh, you know, it's, it is, it is the uh, story of the, uh, you know, of an older version of the rosary that existed prior to, you know, the Catholics getting a hold of it. That uh, traces its way all the way back to, uh, to the upper Paleolithic. And I, I do think that the rosary is, you know, one, one such practice whereby we can cultivate the wisdom of our ancestors and, and get back in touch with that darker, more numinous uh, understanding and way of living. The rosary basically follows a set of 15 mysteries that goes through birth, death, and regeneration. So sort of a, follows the cycle of the seasons. And most Catholics don't, you know, read it that way and understand it that way, but nevertheless encoded uh, in that ancient, in that ritual, uh, is, is the essential wisdom of the, uh, of the mystery traditions of the pagan world. So, uh, there, yes, there are practices in our groups. We have little rosary groups springing up all over the place. And, you know, we're very explicit about the purpose of these groups, which is to give people small, resilient spiritual communities in the face of climate change. Wow. That, that's very specific. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it does a lot of other things. Yeah. I mean, people come in and their lives get better. They, you know, figure out how to manage their families and their finances. And, you know, they pray for a lot of different things. But the bottom line is, you know, you, you know, you better be holding on to something real uh, when the shit hits the fan. And, uh, you know, something grounded, something, you know, the rosary is like an umbilical cord that connects us to our mother. And, uh, you know. Uh, so it's that kind of primal. And there are other, there, there are other, you know, indigenous forms of wisdom. Rosary is that. It's an indigenous form of wisdom, indigenous to, you know, people of, of Europe and the, uh, uh, and the Mediterranean. Uh, there are other forms of indigenous wisdom that, that have the same kind of power. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, people are beginning to reclaim them claiming the wisdom of their ancestors. Yeah. I, I, my experience is there are many, many people who are looking for this, even if they don't know, that's what they're looking oh, for. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So if somebody who's heard this is 
curious or moved by what you've shared and they want to be a part of it, what would you have them do? Well, you know, I would have them probably join uh, the Way of the Rose on Facebook. That's our Facebook group. Uh, And uh, we have members all over the world and we have meetings in cities and towns around the country now and growing every day. And, uh, you know, we don't have any priests or property. We don't charge any dues or fees. You know, our our uh, uh, motto is ecology, not theology. Uh, we don't, uh, you know, we're, we're not, uh, you know, members of any religious organization. We're not trying to build a new one. You know, we, we value circles of friendship rather than uh, lineages of authority. So that's sort of our basic MO. You know, we, um, we're just... Uh, we're, we're based, we are a rosary group. I mean, you know, we, we have the people pray various different versions of the traditional rosary, but, and I get, I think we have a few actual uh, practicing Catholics, but we have a great many Buddhists and Hindus and yogis and Wiccans and, you know, like, oh, it's just, it's an incredibly diverse group. Um, so, yeah, you know, as I hear you share that, um, when I think about the political divisiveness that's occurring in our country, I think, man, this is exactly what we could use to, you know, eliminate or replace that. But I think people don't necessarily, it wouldn't occur for them that way, right? They can see the the, the, the problem, so to speak, but then when they hear a solution, I don't think it occurs for them as a solution. Yeah, well, you have to sort of get in there and you have to do it to see it. You know, you have to, you have to really, you know, we are... Uh, conditioned, I think, to expect solution, top-down solutions to uh, to systemic problems, and uh, it's you know it it sometimes takes a while for people to really grasp the the uh, fundamental tangle that they're caught in. I think I think people are very very frustrated right now. I know I've been frustrated, and uh, you know what can I do? You know how is this going to end? How can we possibly solve uh, these problems? How can we, how can we work together to uh, uh, to solve these problems with with so much divisiveness? And I think the answer is, uh, you know, we're not going to work together. I don't think that there's any hope of that, and uh, and I don't. Um, I, I think it's a pipe dream, you know, to suppose that the world will suddenly all you know, get on the same page and begin to address uh, the difficulties of climate change. I think that people will learn to trust their neighbors and their friends and their family, and they will draw together, and they will form very strong, intimate bonds of connection, and they will build uh, communities based on faith, hope, and ecology, and uh, they will gradually begin to replace a lot of the insane ideas that have uh, driven human activity for the past few thousand years with saner uh, uh, ideas. I mean, you know, I mentioned our, our motto of ecology, not theology. Well, most theological systems are basically insane. You know, as a theological system, Buddhism is insane. Uh, Christianity is insane. Islam is insane. You know, they're all insane because they, they stress this idea of transcendence. And that's an insane idea. Uh, we're, we're not meant to transcend. We're meant to be here. We're meant to be 
part of this planet. We're meant to grow from the dirt and live and return to the dirt. We're meant to live in harmony with everything it is. We're not meant to see ourselves as, as exceptional, uh, distinctive, and alone. Uh, if you're worried about whether or not you're going to get enlightened, uh, then you are on the wrong path. Uh, because, you know, but, you know, again, encoded in the wisdom of all of these traditions is a deep sanity, but it's been lost. Like, there's a great story. One of my favorite stories about the Buddha is that when he was, uh, the moment he attained his enlightenment, the devil, Mara, right, the deceiver, appeared and says, what right do you have to sit on the seat of enlightenment? And according to the legend, the Buddha takes his finger and he touches the ground and says, I call the earth as my witness, right? This is a very early story. And I think that there's a tremendously deep ecological wisdom in it that's been lost in Buddhism, just as Christianity is, and Judaism and Islam and Hinduism have lost their ecological wisdom. But people used to know this, right? That finger touching the ground is, is not a, is not a, uh, uh, you know, he's not like touching the earth saying, you know, the earth knows that I have the right to be enlightened and to be the spiritual king of the universe or whatever. That finger is an equal sign. He's touching the earth because he doesn't need any authority above that. He's just a living being at one with the planet, at one with all that is. So there's no problem. There's nothing to attain. There's, there's nothing to achieve. You know, he's already achieved it. You know, he's, he's a, he is a, a living being, an animal. You know, it's, he's claiming his animal nature. That's his transcendence. That's his enlightenment. That's my point of view anyway. So that's my Buddha. My Buddha is an animal. I love Buddha. I don't care much for the Buddha in the sky. I don't care much for the Jesus in the sky. The Jesus who's, who's you know, lowered into the tomb and, you know, is resurrected on Easter morning and makes the crops grow. That's the Jesus I love. I love that sort of old corn king Jesus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't care for the Jesus in the sky. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's not the one I learned about in Sunday school, <laughs> you know. But, no, and, and the other thing – and I, Clark, I'm, I'm really fascinated by and enjoying this part of the conversation. I'm realizing that I haven't left us time to talk about writing the creative process, but I'm hoping you're open to coming back and talking about your new book. And maybe in that conversation, we could talk about writing and creativity. Well, we can only if we, if we talk about the new book, you'll have to have me and Perdita on because yeah. um, we, we co-authored the book. I would, Perdita, I would love that. Yeah, yeah, Bertina and I wrote it together, and it was quite a process. There was uh, there were a lot of sparks flying. Two huh. professional writers with strong opinions about every word. <laughs> no, I would, that would be that would be a gift. Um, and, and in fact, talking about Perdita with this book, you mentioned that this book, um, "Waking Up to the Dark," was yeah. fifty nine journals that you had well, been keeping. Yeah, it was 59 pocket notebooks that I had been uh, carrying for years and writing about my experiences in the dark. And every once in a while, I would turn one of those notebooks into like a feature article. Like I wrote a cover story for Tricycle, the Buddhist Review on uh, green meditation, you know, and called Turn Out the Lights. It was sort of the earliest iteration of this idea. And I wrote a few other articles here and there, but for the most part, it just came out of these little small pocket notebooks. And uh, at a certain point, 
I realized that the only way I could write a book about the apparitions was to set it for, for modern people, right? Because who wants to read who wants to read a a book about a Marian apparition to an ex Buddhist monk who rarely speaks of Jesus, never mentions the church, and mostly wants to talk about climate change, right? <laughs> who's gonna who's gonna read that, right? That's I a mean niche. the Catholic well, Catholics aren't necessarily going to want to read it because, uh, you know, certainly climate deniers aren't going to read it. It's a, it's a uh, very much a feminist book. And so, you know, most conservative Christians aren't going to be interested in it. So who's it for? So anyway, uh, once, once I realized that the book had to be set up properly, you know, by discussing my experiences in the dark and visionary states and so forth and so on, I realized I'd have to go back and collect all that writing. So I uh, spoke all of it into um, a voice-activated uh, uh, voice software, Dragon Naturally Speaking. So I read the notebooks you know, into my computer and got text from them. And then I gave them to my genius wife, who is a uh, very, very highly sought uh, book doctor and book editor, and she's also an author of on in her own right writes her own books, but she's also very very gifted. She's the person they call when editors in New York call when they think a manuscript is dead and they can't get it to press. Right? She's the one who comes in, you know, and does the you know the triage on the battlefield and <laughs> stitches it together so that it's workable. So she's really good at this. So she took that all of those notebooks and she quilted everything together into the book. And then she gave me writing assignments. She said, well, there's something missing here, and or this isn't clear, or whatever. And so I gradually shaped the writing. All the writing is mine, but the um, you know a lot of the vision of the book and the pacing of the book and the juxtapositions of ideas, that's her genius. Wow. What a, what a gift and what a privilege to have a oh, partner gosh, and a yeah. wife like that. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I don't doubt that I'd ever published anything without Perdita. <laughs> I've done a lot of writing, but probably very little publishing. <laughs> well, just the, maybe the last idea that I just want to touch on while we're in this portion of the conversation was was the one that you talk about how with the Holy Trinity of the, and I don't yeah. mean to make this a whole religious thing, and I don't think it is per se, Yeah. but with this, um, I think the reintroduction or the rewelcoming of the feminine into our modern world, like into our world. You know, right. this, this that's been lost and we're searching for and, and equating, you know, the darkness to the feminine and the creative and all of this, mm. that I had never had this concept of, you know, the holy, like the holy trinity of the father, the son and the holy spirit, this image of really taking out the mother and the daughter oh, yeah. from that yeah. trinity where maybe yeah. it more and replacing it with the spirit where maybe the idea, at least from antiquity, is the quadernity of the mother, yeah. the father. The son, son and the daughter. And the daughter. That's and, right. And I thought yeah. that was really beautiful, and especially as I've learned a little bit about numerology and how yeah. four, although three, of course, is a beautiful number, represents strength right. and the trying right. things, that the, there is something that does seem to be very sacred and powerful about the number four. And then when right. I read it that way, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the writing of – it took a lot of effort, first of all, to write the mother and the daughter uh, out of the scriptures. Uh, you know, the the Upper Paleolithic was dominated by uh, uh, feminine spirituality or at least female divine figures, 
you know, they're they're like uh, a few somewhat physically ambiguous figures to come down to us from the Upper Paleolithic that could possibly be male. The vast majority of them are are not only obviously female, but um, shaped in such a way as to emphasize their power and their uh, fertility. Right? They are mother goddesses, and so. For uh, uh, the, for instance, you know the, uh, uh, the the Hebrew scriptures, right? For the people who collected them, they were coming through. They they had to go through and and weed out all the references to the goddess, which they they did as well as they could. There's still a lot of them in there, right? You know, for instance, most people don't know that God Yahweh had a, a wife, Asherah, and until she was written out of the story. People also don't know that, you know, the first verses of Genesis about the creation are actually a sanitized retelling of the Enuma Elish in which the god Marduk uh, slays his grandmother Tiamat, right, and butchers her body and uses it to form the the various uh, parts of the created world. If you look at the Enuma Elish and you look at the opening verses of the Bible, you find you realize that the, Bi- the opening verses of the Bible are basically a crime scene from which all the blood's been cleaned up. But the evidence is still there. So it's about the murder of the of the of the sea goddess, right, and the tri- the triumph of the male goddess over the female. And so from there, the Bible just goes on and just try, at every step of the way tries to eliminate the divine female. But they can't get rid of her. She comes back as the Virgin Mary. So, you know, how, how can you get rid of her? You really can't. I mean, they, they, they fought a good fight, but, you know, they, they lost. And they keep losing over and over again. Winning is losing where they're concerned. Cause, yeah. Well, then you know. mentioned that it, it can only make sense that the Bible ends with Revelation, needing yeah. a new story a new earth yeah it's right. that's that's where that that vision that all male vision ends in apocalypse it becomes a linear story with the beginning a middle and an end interestingly the rosary the story of the rosary i talked about those 15 mysteries one of the reasons why we know that those 15 mysteries are based on the ancient mystery cults of the pagan world is that they form a circle rather than a line so ostensibly, the rosary is supposed to retell the story of the of the New Testament. I mean, it begins with the Annunciation of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary, saying, "You're going to bear this child," and everything. Right. So, it, given where it begins, it should end with the Last uh, Judgment, right? Well, the priest tried to get it to end that way, and the and the ordinary people said, "Forget it. We're not doing that. That doesn't. That's not. Uh, that's not what we believe." What they believed is that, and this is nowhere in the Bible, but according to their oral legends, the virgin was assumed into heaven where she was crowned the queen of heaven and earth. And if you look at paintings of the Virgin Mary and the coronation, right, the coronation in heaven, she's invariably young again and often holding the infant Jesus. And so the story circles back and starts over again, just like the cycle of the seasons, right? So it's a circular, redemptive narrative rather than a linear, punitive narrative, which is what the Bible is. The Bible is a linear, punitive narrative, which begins with a woman uh, committing you know, the ultimate sin and ends with the destruction of the world. The rosary begins with a teenage girl defying patriarchy and deciding to have a child out of wedlock and ends with her being crowned the queen of heaven and earth. So it's a very different kind of story. (laughs) Again, about as different a story as one could tell, I think. Well, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's ecological 
wisdom uh, as opposed to uh, anthropocentric wisdom. Yeah, that that's really interesting. Well, th- thanks for sharing that. And, and before we move off this entirely, you yeah. used a term I'm not familiar with. Familiar with this, and I'm not even sure I'm saying it right. Anumalish. What's that? Enuma Elish. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's an ancient Babylonian epic. Yeah, about the uh, creation of the world. Yeah, and uh, Tiamat is the sea goddess, and uh, she uh, uh, Marduk fights a battle against her, and he summons up a mighty wind and lets loose an arrow, and it goes down her throat and, and pierces her heart. And interestingly, you know, there are all kinds of little tells that are left over. You know. There are all kinds of things hidden in the rosary and in, and in Catholic iconography that the, that the popes don't even know are there. You know, it's really, really interesting. One of my favorites is uh, the Our Lady of Sorrows has her heart is pierced, right? Just like Tiamat, right? So you have all these signs that the mother goddess is still alive and well, and she's been smuggled like a stowaway, you know, into the hall of the Catholic Church and passed down over the centuries. But she's she's still who she is. She's still very powerful. The medieval Mary behaved like a goddess. She answered prayers. She performed miracles. If she thought Jesus or God were wrongheaded about something, she would uh, she would contradict them. One of my favorite stories is about St. Peter. Uh, and uh, in the Vatican, there's this sacristan. This is guy that is in charge of all the lamps, right, for keeping them lit. But he's a real devotee of the Virgin Mary, right? So one day he notices that uh, the Virgin Mary's lamp is bur- burning really low, but that Peter's lamp has a lot of oil in it, right? So he goes to Peter's lamp and steals some of his oil to put in the Virgin's lamp, right? And that night, uh, St. Peter comes to him in dream and says, you've honored the Virgin above me, and I don't like it. This is my church, right? I'm the rock upon which this church has been built, and when you die, I will surely shut the door to heaven in your face. So the guy wakes up and he's terrified, right? Because you know he believes all this stuff, right? So he's sure he's going to hell and everything. So he goes and he takes, you know, he finds some more oil and he fills up Peter's lamp and he prays to Peter and asks for forgiveness and you know that he'll be spared and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and then. Uh, that, but the saint says, no, you know, won't do it. So that night he falls asleep and the virgin appears to him and she says, I'm going to show you a secret. It takes him to heaven. She leads him around the back and there's a window, right? She says, I leave this open all the time, right? So any anybody can get through who needs to get through, right? Because Peter, don't don't try the front gate because he guards it. And he's, a real, he's got a real up his butt okay so he's just not going to you know he follows the rules he's a stickler he gets angry he he, he tells people they can't come in but you can always just come in through this so that was the mary of the middle ages right <laughs> we know who's really in hundreds, charge hundreds of legends like yeah. this right yeah. where the where the, the 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 pope is the butt of the joke so <laughs> anybody yeah. who's been married to a woman knows who's really the boss in the, in the relationship. So that doesn't surprise me at all. Well, um, man, that's interesting. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. Okay. So with our last few minutes, I want to turn, uh, our conversation to the enlightening lightning round. If you're up for that. Okay. So this is a series of brief questions. I'll ask, I'll do my best to stay out of every now and then I might ask a little more because I'm curious, but you can answer as long as you want. Okay. Question number one, 
please complete the following sentence with something other than the words a box of chocolates. Life is like a garden. Mm. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like a forest. It's like yeah. you know, forest culture, forest ecology. It's all kinds of things are growing in it. You know, and 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 you don't see everything. A lot of it's yeah. going on below the ground, yeah. right? Yeah, and everything goes into it. Sunlight, rain, birds coming and going, insects cross-pollinating. It's a very, very rich and complex uh, tapestry in which, you know, we can participate, but we're not in charge of it. Mm -hmm. So we're living a life, right? And we've been gifted with a life. And, uh, you know, we have some volition and control in our own lives, but we're ultimately not in charge of of life itself, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly not the lives of all other beings, right? And we only have this life briefly you know housed you know in this body and and then it goes back to the greater life and then we live again beautiful okay number two what's something at which you wish you were better oh my gosh so many things <laughs> <laughs> balancing my checkbook uh, <laughs> uh gosh things i wish i was better at uh, you know, I, my mother is a visual artist and a uh, very talented visual artist. My son in, inherited from his grandmother and his other grandmother, too, is a, uh, a costume designer and, and also a wonderful artist, uh, has, has inherited that ability. And my daughter, too, but but not me. Like, I it sort of skipped a generation. So I would love to carry around, to be able to carry around the sketchbook instead of just a journal. Like words are my art form, but but I I long for the ability. Like I see something beautiful, uh, and and uh, a person, uh, 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 an animal, a tree, a, a landscape, and I, I just yearn to be able to capture it. I can't can't do it. Mm. So I would wish I were better at that. Right on. Well, you do pretty well with words. <laughs> well, so, it's it's yeah. it's what I have. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a T-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Well, one of two things. It would have an arrow pointing downward and say, I'm with her. <laughs> okay. Or at the planet or whatever, you know. Uh, or I think it would say, you know, it's like this slogan I've had for years, you know, even before the apparition started, I was already, you know, writing articles for like the Washington Post on this theme. You know, it's been sort of a continuous thing for the past 15 years or so. Ecology, not theology. Hmm. Like that really is my, uh, you know, sort of the essence of my way of thinking. You know, we've we've gone become very wrongheaded with these ideas that aren't, you know, ideas about human beings and what human beings are supposed to value and what they're supposed to believe and it you know it it often has no relation whatsoever to the uh uh to the reality of life on a finite planet all right question number four what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often oh wow so many i mean you know like the list goes on and on uh books i've given away you know i there's this book that um I just love it's called Little Saint and it's by Hannah Green uh, it was finished by it was an un, un, uh, uncompleted work uh, finished by her, her husband and her secretary when she died it is without a doubt one of the most sublime and perfect pieces of 
uh, travel writing I've ever read. And it's about a little town in southern France that is uh, named Conche that is uh, famous for uh, its reliquary statue of a fourth century uh, uh, girl saint. And it's a as a portrait of the townspeople and their beliefs and their customs and whatnot. It, it's just such an extraordinary piece of writing. I mean, she's one of those people where, you know, she had died years before I ever read this book. I discovered it at a, at a, at a library sale, right? I, I used copy and I, you know, I just consumed it and then I gave, gave it to everybody I knew. So but one of my favorite, favorite books. Hannah Green, Little little Saint. That's great. Thank you for that. Saint Foy, yeah. Okay, number five. So you travel a lot. Mm. You've traveled a lot. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Oh, it's easy. My rosary. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I noticed you've got a set of mala beads around your neck, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, the, the beads are like you know the oldest talismans. You know they, you know they, they are they're all like uh, it's not just the rosary. All all prayer beads are like umbilical cords. So, you know, travel involves a lot of you know e- even under the best circumstances a fair fair amount of discomfort, right? And waiting and you know, but I I I'm, I'm never without something to do. You know, I will sometimes pray the rosary for an entire two and a half hour plane ride you know and and it just the time passes and i feel deeply tranquil and calm and and um so it's really wonderful it's it's my one go-to thing i will tell one story is that one of our members uh her uh you know she was part of that uh california blackout recently because the fires Mm -hmm. i don't know if you know about this but they the electrical company is so worried about wildfires that they shut down the um uh they shut down the uh electrical grid uh you know so but then the fires came up and the fire started anyway and the fires were coming towards this friend of ours house a member of our you know larger rosary community and uh, she she you know took pictures with her phone of the fire coming right she had to leave her house so with her kids and her her family and she had to go and knock on the doors of the people in her neighborhood right to to tell them because with with no electricity they didn't have any way of knowing that the fire was coming and they had to evacuate so she left she had this go bag she had all these preparations all she grabbed was a rosary wow like just instinctively she thought well if i have this i'll survive right so she's going around knocking on her neighbor's doors and only after she's knocked on the you know fifth or sixth person i think does she realize that she's grabbing this rosary for all she's worth her hand she's forgotten her go bags she got her kids she got her husband and she's got her rosary and that's it right so travel is not just just travels you know it's just that you have to have something to ground you you have to have something that connects you to 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 your faith and hope and you know powers greater than yourself yeah no that's beautiful what's one thing that you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well Started or stopped doing? Well, I've never stopped uh, walking, um, although there have been periods of time when I walked less. And I'm certainly walking a great deal more now for my health and just my sanity. So just as a form of exercise. So that's one thing. Uh, I stopped eating um, gluten. 
Hmm. Uh, a, a while back, uh, I thought I was gluten intolerant, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out that I'm allergic to Roundup oh. uh, glyph- glyphosate, which is in the entire uh, 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 U.S. Uh, wheat supply. So I, I don't think there is a form of wheat, except maybe einkorn wheat, uh, that doesn't have glyphosate in it. So I can go to um, France and uh, or Italy or any place where where uh, GMOs are outlawed and glyphosate is outlawed and uh, I can eat the bread and with no ill effects at all but one piece of regular bread of any kind even supposedly organic bread and and I have you know I develop neurological uh, symptoms so so I've had to quit that and but my health you know it's amazing you know my my health immediately I was you know improved dramatically as soon as I realized what was going on and i quit eating all wheat so i don't eat any wheat at all wow how long ago was that decision uh well it was we went on a trip to france which was when i discovered that i could eat bread and i realized it must be glyphosate so before that i was off gluten i thought i had a gluten intolerance and that was that trip was in 2015 And it was we we went to uh, on a kind of a pilgrimage to the Dordogne to vi- visit the painted caves and to see Our Lady of Rocamadour for the for the book. We yeah. were doing a kind of a pilgrimage trip uh, uh, as research for the book, and I was able to eat all you know whatever I wanted basically. And I came back and I thought you know was I just fooling myself? Like I took ate one piece of American bread and boom, I was as sick as I'd been. Wow. Uh, so then I realized I did a little research, and right about that time, the uh, the uh, articles were beginning to come out revealing that glyphosate was used in the ripening process for wheat in America, and that it was so so it had so uh, fouled the water supplies in most uh, areas where wheat is grown that that you know there wasn't any way to get wheat that didn't have that uh, that toxin in it. Wow. Created by Monsanto, which is yeah. my guess is why they sold out to Bear so to avoid liability for it. So wow. that's gonna that's gonna be a big, 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 big class action suit coming. Yeah, I mean, but I, I won't even. I'm not even gonna go on this. So I'm yeah, gonna keep going with yeah, the questions. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Thank, thank, that, I'm very concerned. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a roundup. It's a bad. It's a it's it's one of the. Uh, of all the chemicals ever created by human beings, this this is, uh, you know, this is one of the most evil. Yeah. Okay. Uh, question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Well, that's a really good question. One thing I wish everything, every American knew. Well, I guess I, I wouldn't limit it to Americans, actually. Uh, I think I, I would wish that every human being knew that um, that they had forebears going back for tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands even millions of years that they that they stand atop a you know a, a, you know a kind of a, a you know a plateau of time and but below them is time you know millions of years deep and that they are only the most recent, you know, biological successors to these earlier beings, you know, who've come before that I sometimes call the, the army of the dark revolt, the army of the dead, you know, and these people, uh, most of them, uh, knew how to live in a way that, that we've forgotten and they knew how to live sustainably. They knew how to live sanely. 
they knew how to live in a way that I think was a great deal less fearful and less anxious. And uh, I'll just give you one brief example. I grew up in, uh, you know, all over the South, but I spent a great deal of time living with my grandmother when I was young in Forest City, Arkansas. And, uh, you know, that was about 40 miles across the uh, river from Memphis, Tennessee. Well, when I was uh, researching the way of the rose, I decided to write about my early experiences, uh, you know, in Arkansas, you know, digging arrowheads out of the soil and stuff like that. And I ran across this amazing detail. When it's one of those details that reshuffles your brain, putting out an entirely new set of cards on top. Like I felt like once I discovered this, my whole brain had been reshuffled, right? So the detail was this, that human beings have inhabited the area around Memphis, Tennessee, for twice as long as human beings have inhabited the area around Memphis, Egypt, its namesake. Wow. The capital of the old kingdom of Egypt, Memphis, had been, was, has been continuously inhabited for about 5,000 years, whereas Memphis, Tennessee, has been continuously inhabited for 10,000 years. So the arrowheads that I was digging up, and my grandfather was a farmer, was turning up with his plow when I was a little boy. Were, were the relics of the people who'd lived there for 10,000 years before me on that soil. So it never occurred to me as growing up as a boy that time was that deep and yeah. that I stood atop uh, uh, the geological evidence of, of human beings living for that long. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Like if every American knew that that they that their life was the, only the most recent uh evidence of, of lives that went back that far. I mean, if they really, I mean, I think people, a lot of people know it, unless they're fundamentalist Christians who believe the world's 5,000 years old, but if they aren't and they have any knowledge at all of, of prehistory, then, but, but to, to really know that, to really understand that in your bones and in your cells, gives you a kind of a confidence to, to live and to think for yourself, and to act for yourself that you wouldn't have otherwise. We're very cut off from our instincts. We, we trust our leaders and our policies and our laws to tell us what to believe and how to behave and how to solve problems. But really, most of what we have is within us. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. And I think we're not only cut off from our instincts, but also our ancestors. Yeah, that's right. right. We are. And, yeah. And, and I yeah, love the way don't. you describe this in, in Waking Up to the Dark about all time is ancestral time. It is. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. beautiful. That's right. Oh, thank you. Okay. Question number eight, and we're almost we're almost coming to the end of the enlightening okay, lightning round, right. and then we'll wrap up. Okay. But, okay. So, what's the most important or useful relationship advice you've ever received and successfully applied? Well, I mean, I think you know, I did not grow up in a family where where we communicated with one another, uh, you know, in a in a I think a really meaningful, you know, emotionally intelligent kind of way, and I have learned from my wife how to do that. And, you know, she's been my sort of principal patient, mostly patient <laughs> teacher <laughs> about that. So, you know, I, I think the, the, the most valuable lesson I think I've ever received from her, which is that, you know, it's better to say what you're thinking or feeling, you know, than to just hold it inside. And I grew up, you know, in, in a down south in a, 
in a male culture where where men oftentimes didn't say what they felt, didn't even acknowledge they had feelings, right, or were motivated by feelings, or that feelings, you know, had a bearing on their decisions, even though they did. And so for me to, uh, you know, begin to sort of be able to communicate my feelings and uh, in a relationship and communicate, it's been, you know, you know, most women hear a man say something like that, and they say, duh, gosh, how can you (laughs) stupid yeah. can you be yeah but you know it's not uh you know it's not it's not so easy for some of us so i've, I've learned that and it's you know and my daughter too my daughter's like she is she is the master of you know getting through to you know breaking through my my defenses to get at the real stuff you know so i'm also grateful to her so the two of them really wow. and my son too my son also he he was raised by his sister is older than him so he was, in a sense, raised by by uh, my daughter and my mother. So he's ahead of me in all this. So yeah. he's better at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that reminds me of something Buckminster Fuller said about children are our ancestors in universe time because oh, they enter a more beautiful. complete universe. Oh, wonderful. I've never heard that. I love that. Yeah, they're, they're not our ancestors, <laughs> are our, our elders. Children are our elders yeah, in universe yeah. time. So, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Okay, so aside from compound interest – What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're sure to do to always do or never do with it? Well, no, the the thing I've learned about money is that uh, if I give myself fully to my passion, to what I really believe and, and, you know, in, in faith and trust that the money comes and the money manifests for whatever it is I need to do. Whereas the more I agonize about money or worry about money, you know, as I learned to do in my family, pretty much growing up, uh, then uh, the the worst things are. Yeah, you know, the you know Jesus said a lot of really smart things. One of the smartest things he said, I think, was uh, to him that hath more shall be given, and to him that hath not, even that little which he has shall be taken away. And uh, that always seemed kind of punitive and weird to me. And I, you know, growing up, you know, hearing that in church, I sort of, I think I sort of rejected the idea of it. It took a long time to realize that he was talking about faith and that if you have a little bit of faith, right, then you get more faith than you get if you have a little bit of gratitude, you get more reason for feeling gratitude. Whereas if you, you have a little scarcity and cling to that and cling to a, feeling of not having enough, then, then you tend to experience not having enough more and more, like you have less and less. Yeah. So I've learned to practice gratitude and to, not even to practice it, but just to, to realize how lucky I am. You know, yeah. it's like if I, the moment you, you the moment I start to feel uh, deprived or worried or anxious about the future, uh, if I just start to look around and count my blessings, like literally starting in my visual field of this, that, whatever, people, the house, the opportunities, uh, you know, books I have coming out, stuff like that, uh, instantly things start to shift. And then invariably within a day or two, some new opportunity comes along and, you know, my financial worries are, are usually eased. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Okay, and that's the end of the enlightening lightning round. So to wrap up, um, two things. One is speaking of money, I have taken $100 and made a micro loan to an entrepreneur, uh, a woman who lives in Mm. India. She's Mm. a 45-year-old named Chitra. She's going to use this money to buy a cow 
in order to expand her dairy business, improve the quality of life for her, her family, mm. people in her community. Mm. And I've done that as a way of saying thank you. So I've done that on your mm. behalf to oh, thank, thank you. Oh, thank you. That's wonderful. What yeah. a wonderful thing. Thank yeah. you. So so thanks for giving me what a, a reason to do that. What a blessing. Yeah. yeah. What's your name? What's uh, your name Her name again? is Chitra. C-H-I-T-R-A. And she's in the Turu... Teruchipali district of Tamil Nadu, and I'll actually send you okay. after this. Yeah, please do. I'll, I'll add her. I'll, I'll add her and her cow to my uh, my rosary prayers. Awesome, that's beautiful. Yeah. And then, and then the other thing is, if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, and I know you told me already about the Facebook group, the Way of the Rose on Facebook, but if yeah. people want to learn from you or connect with you, what would you have them do? Uh, well. Uh, I think that uh, the easiest place to go, other than the Facebook group, is wayoftherose.org. And uh, my books are listed there. Uh, I've, also, I've written a lot of books. You know, uh, I've written books on haiku poetry. I teach an online uh, master class in haiku poetry. It's the 17-syllable uh, verses about uh, the season. It's a very ecologically grounded uh, form of poetry. My first book, uh, Seeds from a Birch Tree, which I'm going to republish, I think, in the next year or so, was about haiku poetry. So um, I teach haiku on Facebook, and I um, I don't do much teaching apart from haiku poetry. Uh, mostly I uh, try to encourage people and uh, help people, uh, uh, you know, connect with, with these ideas, Um most of most of our activity nowadays is directed towards Way of the Rose. I mean, we're a, an eco-feminist rosary group, basically. So, uh, with no you know allegiance to the Catholic Church or any other form of religion, and so that sort of leaves us open to write about a lot of things. And so we partner with a lot of different uh, people, and you know, give talks various places. And uh, we will be putting up uh, our workshop schedule for the next year uh, sometime. Um, uh, sometime, you know, in the next few months on our face, um, I mean, on our, uh, uh, our website, we are teaching a, uh, retreat on the way of the rose at Roe conference, uh, camp and conference center in Massachusetts, uh, in February. Oh, great. So, and for people listening, yeah. because this won't be released for a few months from the day we're recording, this is October of 2019, oh, okay. but this will uh, I plan to release this in January of 2020, so okay, that good. timing could be, good. Could be perfect. Very good. So just to give anybody listening context of what year, what years are we talking about? <laughs> right, <laughs> those, those right. Are the years. Yeah. And then, and then, just to clarify on that web address, is it wayoftherose.org or the way of the rose? It is wayoftherose.org. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, man, I have really enjoyed this conversation. I've oh, it's been a very, it's been a real yeah. pleasure. Yeah. You're, you're, you. you're a, 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 a really fun interviewer. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm very curious <laughs> and I love what you're writing about. So I've, yeah, it's been, well, it's been I do, pleasure. I, you know, I do a fair number of podcasts and, you know, you know, audio interviews and things like that. But this, this one was unusually fun. So well, thank thanks. you for that. You're, you're a very easy, easy person to talk to. So. Well, thank you. And I might reach out to you about that conversation and, and uh, interviewing you with, with your, with Perdita. If, if you're open. Yeah, it's, I, we are open. And I have to say, you know, the interviews we do together are a lot of fun because <laughs> we, 
we we have differences of opinion. Oh yes, <laughs> and and uh, you know, just it, it's it's fun. Like I mean, just talking recently, some we were doing something, and somebody was asking what it's like to write the book together, and that alone, like if you want to, if you want a really fascinating conversation about process, our process for writing this book was un. I think it's one thing. I think is unrepeatable. Wow. But but I mean, unless we work together on another book in the same way, but. It was really, really something. I mean, we were both both completely at the top of our game and completely out of our depth writing the, the kind of book we wrote. Wow. And the result was a, a book that you know our publisher is very excited about and we're very excited about. And they just sent me the list today of the people they're sending it out to. They're sending it out to like 300 people in, wow. the, in, the, in the media, like 30 people from the New York Times. Like wow. the, the mere idea that Random House is putting – major effort behind a book on the rosary is just mind-boggling yeah, to me. That's fantastic. Well, yeah. just you and Perdita and a column of saints. That's it. <laughs> that's it. You got it. Yeah. That's right. That's, that's great. right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will look forward to the time our paths cross again. And Good. again, thank you so much for making You're all quite this time. welcome. Well, thank you so much. And just let me know when, uh, you know, when it's going to go live and I will share it on Way of the Rose and, okay. you know, they'll share it with hundreds of their best friends. <laughs> I, I love it. I will be sure to do so. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 